Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, the ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Good afternoon. So one, it's always very humbling to speak after um, music. Um, I, I have mastered nothing as well in my life as those musicians mastered that one piece. Um, and I think a preacher tries to invoke some feeling um, and might, and might invoke a, an emotion through words, but musicians just simply accomplish it, right? So, so we'll do the best we can. Um, first, thank you. Thank you to Catherine and Scott and Heidi and Scott Nardell um, for the gracious welcome here to Memphis. Today, the church honors Gregory of Nyssa. There are a number of Gregories, and there's a whole debate about who the best Gregory is, but today we get Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory is the younger brother of Basil the Great and Macrina the Younger. Of course, you wanted to know that. Also a brother to Peter. Um, they are the grandchildren of Macrina the Elder. And with Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus are the Cappadocian fathers. Cappadocia is in Turkey. It's where you will find those amazing underground cities. Have you seen those everyone's writing about right now? Right there, that city is where he's from. There are churches as part of them, really underground, almost like looking at, a, at those old um, ant communities that we had in the 70s. Literally underground, safe sanctuary from predators in, time, in times of, um, of invasion. The Cappadocian fathers um, are known to us because they give us the Nicene Creed um, in the form that we have it today, essentially, except, of course, in Greek. And its centrality in Christian practice is called orthodoxy. That is from them, which means right thinking, by which they mean Trinitarian thinking, with right understandings of who Jesus is and how God, the creator of heaven and earth, relates to Jesus and the animating Holy Spirit. Now, it was just this past Sunday that in that after-church line where you shake hands and ask everybody how they are, that someone said to me, shaking my hand, how long do we have to keep saying that creed? <laughs> what I think she meant was, it's an inaccessible time suck, right? So, well, we have Gregory, both of the Gregories, and Basil to thank for that. Now, that particular set of church fathers descended of a very particular faithful family of persecuted early Christians. So Gregory himself dies in 394. We're in the fourth century. He and his friend Gregory of Nazianzus were strategically placed in bishop seats by Basil to have the votes to get this thing done, right, the creed. They are on the record as having been very, very bad at being bishops. So despised by the people of the time that they are accused of embezzlement. And it's even clear in the writings they probably didn't do it. People just hated them and wanted them out. What a great time in the life of the church, right? They prove, though, to be better at other things. They leave behind writings of the love in which we are created by God. This is the fourth century for love for wisdom. They write of a vibrant sense of energy moving throughout this created order that offers us all a way to a courageous and beautiful life. 
discerned through these ancient texts, the Bible for them, ordered like the best thinking of the time for a life of faith, mercy, and beauty. And maybe the creed is just luscious in Greek. I don't know. My Greek isn't very good. So this is from Gregory of Nyssa, A.D. 395 is when he dies. The soul whose life is in God will find its pleasure in none of those things that are deceptively presented as something good. And that's pretty old-fashioned church stuff. Gregory was married and takes the Pauline idea of the church as the spouse of God and makes it very personal. You, you Christian, your Christian life, your soul is like a marriage with God. You, spicy as the young people might say, wisdom is available to all of us. It is close, it is personal, and it is communal. This is also from Gregory. In Numbers 13 and 14, we read that when Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt and to the borders of Canaan, he sent 12 spies into the land to look it over. They returned to report two things. The inhabitants of the land were fierce warriors and would be a difficult, formidable enemy. And the land was very good, fertile soil, an abundance of natural resources. And as proof they brought back, I'm sure you remember this from Sunday school, a cluster of grapes so large that it hung from a wooden pole that two men carried between them. Ten of the spies said that the enemy was too strong to be defeated and that we should turn back. But two, Joshua and Caleb, urged the people to remember that God was with them and had shown God's self mighty to save. They had come through the Red Sea. They had found themselves freed from enslavement in Egypt, Joshua and Caleb remind them. The people listened to the ten and got packed up and turned back. At this, God was so angry that God says, right then, you will wander for the, in the wilderness for 40 years. Right then. It was not determined from the beginning. Right then, because they retreated, you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all of the men of this generation have died, except for Joshua and Caleb. Only then shall the next generation go in to possess the homeland that I had promised to Abraham and his descendants. Now Gregory, in writing on this, treats the story of the Exodus as a type, which is how they talked about things, kind of a, a model for our deliverance from the bondage of sin. Liberation theologians do the same, but for us communally, that, that walking through the, the Red Sea, that fleeing of Egypt, is, is a sign for us of what God does for God's people. Gregory does the same. The bondage of sin, we are freed from it and go to the promised land as a type of heaven. He comments that the Israelites had been guilty of all kinds of sins, repeated rebellions. Remember, they whined a lot. They were angry and frustrated. Those people wandering in the desert, mad at Moses. They had been disobedient. All of that had happened. But none of these moved God to deny them entrance into the promised land. They were still on their way. It was only that when they had come to the land, to the verge, the brink of the land, and God showed them that good land, then, then, that they turned around. Even though God had given them that cluster of grapes on that wooden pole between two spies, the magic cluster of grapes. There had never been grapes so big. 
and yet they refuse to trust in the promise of God to save them from their enemies, even though God had already done it in their lifetime. So they turn back, it says. So it is not the failure to live virtuous lives, Gregory writes, that keep us from heaven, but a refusal to believe in the mercy of God and to trust God's gracious proclamation of God's goodwill towards all of us, concretely expressed, he says, in the saving blood of Jesus the Christ, who for our sakes hung on the wood of the cross between two thieves as those grape clusters hung on the wood of the pole between the two, two spies, showing forth in his own body the sign of God's goodwill to us and his assurance that he is ready to overcome all of our enemies. Now that idea of enemies sounds quite old-fashioned. We don't talk like that. Everything I'm reading is extremely old-fashioned, and I know you all are open-minded enough to hear it, but I also find it kind of exciting, I have to say. Can we believe in God's promises enough to risk ourselves for them? There would be a battle ahead, it says, if they had gone forward. But could we, in this time, believe in God's promises through those sites of battle so that it will not be for other generations to find the promised land. So if we want to be about mercy and peace, if we desire hope in our time, one way, I think, is to go back and look at these old stories, these old models and these old characters and receive the depths of the spiritual riches that are ours. So you heard the reading from the Wisdom of Solomon, and that is a sign today for Gregory. You heard the she, and wisdom is always a woman in, um, in the Bible. And you will remember that wisdom is Sophia in Greek, ruach in Hebrew, like a breath, right? In the beginning, Elohim, God, the plural God, created heaven and earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep water, the Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, was hovering over the water. That is the genealogy of the passage that we get today. And wisdom is always a she. It is not a mistake come down to us through Greek, like the inclusive he in Greek. Wisdom is a woman in the Bible. In Proverbs, she moves in the marketplace. She is among us in the places we make value and exchange, in the places where justice is negotiated where the ways of the world are worked out over coffee and the news and dates. And in the wisdom reading today, wisdom is the breath of the power of God. There was a time when just saying wisdom is a woman was exciting enough and I could sit down now. In a church that had no place for women or very particular places for women, or at the beginning of the Me Too movement, which wasn't that long ago, or in particularly sexist times and places, I have one priest colleague um, who regularly points out that of the two billion or so Christians alive on the planet today, the vast majority, majority of them will never hear a woman preach or see a woman at an altar or expect to. In some parts of the world, the physical subjugation of women is taken for granted. In our country, violence against women remains epidemic here. Wisdom is a woman, the text says. But for most of us, this is not the revolution that we are awaiting. 
we're making some progress on these issues in this part of the world and are learning how to think more expansively about gender, that Elohim in creation reminds very, remains very exciting, right? The multiple of God, the multi-gendered earth creature about to be created later in Genesis, that's where the action actually is, right? How exciting that we inherit that. And the other compelling part in this moment in our American life is that the wisdom that flows among us is there for us, as we heard from Gregory, in liberating acts of justice if we do not choose to turn away. Against wisdom, evil does not prevail, we heard read. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. May it be so, we must pray. Like you all in Memphis, we in Atlanta, and really all over our nation, seek wisdom for the right ordering of this time. And it is nothing less than wisdom from the foundations of the world that these times require. We are living through an era of fundamental redefinition of who we are, and I believe it is good and right and terrifying and disorienting and resisted. Like the Israelites deciding which story to believe, those tired, wandering, free people, do we believe the ten? Do we believe the two? Can we still hear our God? We are regularly faced with choices just like theirs, where they get those really big grapes. It's so clear there's something over there that is for us. We too get a vision of that, of equity, of inclusion, of thriving, of diversity, of hope. We see it in our children. But also, at times, an unimaginable set of battles to get there. For us, it might be for a peace, a kind that we have never known, where the labor of no one is taken as our right, no body abused in a prison on our watch, no one disposable at our borders, no child left hungry in our schools, no child on a factory floor laboring, wages that support life, no person left simply to survive in a body that their minds tell them is not for them, no sick brain left to roam the streets without shelter, without enough housing, Maybe we could have enough housing, affordable housing, something, maybe anything other than a gun as the totem of the American way. What if we walked the way of wisdom in these streets? What if we looked for what is wisdom in our streets? What do we want our children to know we believe? Someone asked last night. I think I want my children to know that the people who wrote the Bible tell us that before creation there was something called wisdom. And the word in Hebrew sounds like a phlegmy H that, that gets caught in your throat, like when the spring flowers come up or when you're about to cry because there are no words. But we can feel that we are one. And the poetry of those first lines feel like God breathing a slow in and out through all of time, and that they, God, Elohim, speaks words through that breath and worlds appear that everything on this earth is filled with that same breath of God, wisdom, the groves of trees, the rushes of water, the woodpeckers, our dogs. A right ordering seeks to shake its way out of all of this creation and in us, in you and in me, like a mirror held up to discern the face of God, like squinting at two billion squares on your Zoom screen that make out holiness like believing that every beaten or shot up body is a catastrophe 
of the level of our crucified Jesus. Every wandering neighbor, like the friends that our Jesus looks upon with eyes of love. Our friend Gregory would have heard the stories of his grandmother fleeing the persecution of Diocletian, leaving everything, somehow surviving, submitting to holy orders and ill-fitting jobs so that Basil could do the thing he thought would save the faith. But most importantly, leaving for us what God's liberating acts of justice require of us. Wisdom does not insist. She shines something greater than light through this created order. It is difficult in every generation. She will not be contained in a doctrine. She is the breath of prayer, like a sanctuary for the persecuted, for Brianna, for Tyree, for school children, for women who dream of equality, wisdom will sweep through our broken hearts, we are promised, because in every generation she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God and prophets. May we too be lovers of wisdom in our time. Holy Sophia, breath of life, may she change you and charge you that we may go forth together with courage to the land of promise. Amen. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 100-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into a beloved community marked by unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.